Please turn with me now to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, these are well-known words, but Lord, as with all well-known words, we know that we do not begin to understand the half of their import and ask, Lord, truly that you would open the way into a knowledge of these things. Lord, every, we do not wish that any one of your words should fall to the ground, but every last one of them would yield the the fruit of instruction and of worship that you have intended it for us. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enable us to see your holiness in these words. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And tonight we come to Exodus chapter 3 and to the great appearance of God to Moses at the burning bush. And we're just focusing on these first six verses that I've read. Now, just as a reminder, after fleeing from Egypt, Moses had married Zipporah, the daughter of Jethro, and had spent the intervening 40 years there in the desert working in the family business, which was tending sheep. And this is precisely how we find him then in the first verse of this chapter And now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. So it is now, after Moses has been fully prepared by God, after serving all these long years in obscurity as a shepherd, finally now God appears to him. And when he does appear, he appears in the form of the burning bush, the flame of fire that is in the midst of this bush that is not consumed. And we have to ask the question, why? Why fire? God is omnipotent. God is, uh, we know that he could appear in any form that he would wish to. Why does he appear in this particular form as a flaming fire? Well, we have to understand not only is he omnipotent, not only can he do all things, but he is also perfectly wise. And every last thing he does is perfectly wise. And so it is not random we do not imagine that, that, that God's, uh, just because God could do something, that therefore all possibilities are like 
uh, equal before his eyes, but rather he chooses the one that is the, the most perfect in his purposes in revealing himself. And what is he showing to us in appearing as a flame of fire? Well, we have to think about the properties of fire. What we see in fire? Well, we see light, for instance. The, the whole purpose of this is that he is revealing himself. There, he is speaking to Moses, who's going to be the messenger of his people, and he is revealing something that would not otherwise be known, and a great property of fire is it brings light. To add to it beauty. You know, there are many of us who would gladly spend an hour in a lit room that has artificial electric light. It doesn't need any more light. It already has central heating, but we would be gladly look on, uh, on a wood fire for a long time. Why? Because it is beautiful to look at. Our man-made light is, is not so great, but in this natural light of a fire, we, we see beauty. And to add to it warmth, of course, of course. There is warmth to be had in this, and it is a, there is something that is particularly calming and reassuring of the warmth of a fire that cannot otherwise be replicated. But to add to it, what else do we know about fire? There is also destruction. It will consume all that is flammable before it. You, you have to be careful with fire. If you have a fire in your home, it, it should be in some, for instance, a wood stove that, it, that is, is isolated or otherwise in a fireplace that is isolated from the rest of your home, lest it burn down your house, because that is what a fire would do. It is, in this sense, dangerous. But perhaps beyond all of these things, one property of fire is that it is pure. It is pure. There is purity to be had in it. There's not impurities in this flame, it is itself pure and it will purify that which is impure. If you have something, for instance, that is impure, and you can put it in the furnace and it will purify it. Even metal itself, even steel will be melted down. If it is impure, it will be melted down and the impurities can be burned off. There's nothing that cannot be purified by fire. Well, it is for this reason that God manifests himself as who reveals himself as what? The holy God. This is the thing that is seen in this flaming fire. It is a fire of holiness. If there's one attribute above all, and we do not say that there's only one attribute. I don't mean to say that. That is a great mistake to imagine that God only has one attribute. But if there's one that God is, is most concerned to demonstrate, most concerned to, to communicate more than anyone else, it is his holiness. As the seraphim declare in Isaiah, as we declared, we spoke those words in the hymn, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is holiness. And it is that attribute that we are considering mainly tonight. The holy God appears. That's our title tonight. The holy God appears. There are the three, three points. Burning bush, holy ground, afraid to look. I've truncated them, children, so you can hopefully remember. Burning bush, holy ground, afraid to look. Okay? So the first one is, first point, burning bush. In verse 3, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, and the priest, who is the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked... And behold, the bush was burning with fire, 
but the bush was not consumed. Now, first of all, I want us to understand something that is very frequently forgotten in this, that it is the angel of the Lord that appears to Moses. This is not the divine essence itself that has appeared. It is sometimes mistaken as if that were the case. No, it is the angel of the Lord that is appearing. He and, and who is this angel, big capital A, angel of the Lord? We've said it many times. It is a second person of the Godhead, is the pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Christ. There he is. The angel of the Lord. And he is doing what he always does. He's revealing to us what God is like and what God would have man to do at this point, this juncture in the history of redemption. There are many times in which the angel of the Lord appears, has already appeared, and he shall appear as we go through this book and and others in the Old Testament, and he is revealing God to his people. But, of course, his appearance is in a flame of fire, okay? And we should not be surprised that this is the particular appearance that God takes. For this is not the first time that, this, that God has appeared in such a way. Back in Genesis 15, the great time in which God is making the covenant with Abraham, Genesis 17, you remember that uh, God has put Abraham to sleep, And there is the animals who are cut, and they're cutting this covenant. That's the way they did it. They had these animals, and ordinarily the two of them would walk together, but actually it's God himself who walks in the middle. And what appearance does he take? Well, in Genesis 15, uh, 15, 17, when the sun went down and it was dark, behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between these pieces, a smoking oven and a burning torch. That's the appearance of the angel of the Lord. And then after that, as we carry on in the book of Exodus soon again, soon enough as they, they, they leave the land in Exodus 13, the Lord is going to go before them. And what is the appearance of the Lord there? By day, a pillar of cloud to lead the way. And by night, a pillar of fire to give them light. So as to go by day and night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day or the pillar of fire by night from before the people. This is the appearance of God. And in fact, in Exodus 27, he's explaining the appearance of of the Lord on the holy mountain. The sight of the glory of the Lord was like what? A consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went in the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, a consuming fire. This is the way the Lord appears to them. And maybe some of you remember the series in the book of Revelation. Revelation, of course, you know, is not some obscure work only for the interest of certain antiquarians or others who wish to pry into various things, but rather it is the revelation of Jesus Christ And the very first thing that happens is an appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how does he appear in Revelation chapter 1? And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. That is the appearance of the Lord, and we know that that very that when we summarize someone, when we summarize, if there's one part that we would wish to look at to know someone, to know what they're thinking, to know what is in their hearts, we want to see their eyes because God has created eyes that they might reveal 
something of the heart of man. And so much more so when it is summarized, even as the Lord comes as the, the friend of the Apostle John, that his eyes are as a flame of fire. This is the holy nature of God being portrayed. Well, therefore, it is not a surprise that he appears as a flame of fire. Now, in verse 3, Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. He has seen burning bushes before. This is the desert. It doesn't happen so much here in the United Kingdom, where everything is, is wonderfully moist, and, there, and such a thing doesn't happen. But in drier climates, sometimes in the wilderness, things simply catch on fire. And so it was that there were, he would have seen in the desert a burning bush or two. But the problem with this one, or the difference with this, is that it was not consumed. It is burning, but it's not consumed. So why did the bush not burn? What is the answer to the conundrum that, that Moses has as he sees a bush that is burning but is not consumed? Well, of course, the easy answer is that this is no natural fire. This is, this is supernatural. This is spiritual fire. But of course, even so, Moses was afraid of it. Why then, in any case, did not burn the bush? Whatever kind of fire it might have been, if it was of supernatural origin, there's the manifestations of the flame of fire. Why does it not burn this bush? And the answer is because the bush was not sinful, you see. The, the bush and all natural things there are morally undefiled. They have not sinned against the living God. And therefore, the holiness of a, a burning, even the, the burning holiness of the living God himself in, in a locality will not destroy these works of his own hand because they have not rebelled against him. This bush has done no sin. On the other hand, even a man such as Moses, a holy man, who would be noted above all as one who had fellowship with the living God, one of the most holy men ever to live, yet he could not make an easy and immediate approach, and he would not dare, not even to look upon, let alone that he would enter into this flame as the bush was in the midst of. He would surely be burned by it because of his sin. This is a picture of our God, this burning flame. Now, let me say, as I, this holiness is what we are looking at, and this holiness, it is pictured, is portrayed as a, a burning fire, and I want us to see that this is something deep about the, the nature of God, both then and, and forever. Because the glory of heaven will absolutely consist in the holiness of God. What is beautiful about heaven is the, the holiness of God. What is wonderful about heaven, yes, is Christ. And he is the, the very demonstration, the very revelation of this holiness. The holy presence of, God, of Christ among us in heaven is what's so wonderful about it. We know in Revelation twenty one twenty three, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illumined it. The Lamb is its light. Right now we need a sun. The sun is, is burning it is a fire beyond your comprehension. No fire on earth uh, begins to compare with the power and the, the destructive power, yes, but also of the incredible warmth and brilliance of the sun. And, and as it shines in its noonday strength, we dare not look at it. It will burn our eyes. 
But this is just a type. This is just a picture of the burning holiness of God. And we don't need a son. Why? Because we have something even better. We actually have Christ in all of his burning holiness. But we will not be ashamed to be with him because we will be holy like he is holy. And we as holy beings in that burning holiness living in beautiful light and warmth and all that is lovely and and beautiful together with him. On the other hand, what is the horror and terror of hell? Is it not again the holy presence of a living God, a holy God in hell? Yes, absolutely. The horror of hell is the wrathful presence of Christ. Revelation 14, 10. He himself shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Don't let anyone say that hell consists in the absence of God. Absolutely not. What is so horrible, what is so terrible about hell is precisely the wrathful presence of Christ. That's the problem with it. There, the fire is there. The sun itself in all of its naked horror to those who are sinners. And they shall be consumed. There in the holy fire of a holy God forever and ever and ever. But this bush, this bush has done no wrong. It remains, it is not consumed in the holy fire of God. Well, there's a burning bush. Secondly, there is holy ground. In verse 4, So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Well, first of all, let me say this is very remarkable. Very remarkable that the Lord saw that he turned aside to look and he called to him because it seems to me that he was there waiting. Doesn't it seem that way? That the Lord is there waiting for this encounter, waiting to, to meet with Moses. So even in the midst of this display of his awesome holiness, let us not forget this amazing condescension. The Lord is there patiently waiting for Moses. Moreover, he, know, he knows Moses' name. He doesn't say, hey, you. He knows Moses' name. And he calls him by his name just as he knows his own sheep and calls his own sheep by their name. Maybe that was, I don't know, maybe Moses named his sheep. Some shepherds do. And that is the picture we have of, of the shepherd calling each one of the sheep forth of his own people one by one. And here is the pre-incarnate Christ calling to Moses one of his sheep. Yes, who would be the shepherd of his people. But yet Moses a sheep, first of all, and being called by his name. Beautiful. We're going on. Then he said, do not draw near this place. Take, off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. And that's a, a strange and almost incommensurate thing. He's calling to him. He's there. He's drawing him. Yet at the same thing, he says, don't come here. Well, which one is it? Do you want him to come or do you not want him to come? Well, that's no contradiction. It is a kindness. Yes, he wants him to come. The Lord wants to interact with Moses, but first he must prepare him for that. Again, the reason is that this is holy ground. This is holy ground. 
This is not a, a situation where anything goes. From the fall of man, look, look, before the fall of man in, in Eden, in this place of perfection, God had very easy converse, very easy interaction with Adam and Eve. It was all very casual because there these holy beings were living together in perfect harmony. And there was nothing between them. But then, then they sinned. And they fell. They died spiritually. Now there's a wall of separation. Indeed, he sent an angel with a sword, a flaming sword, to guard the entrance into communion with, with God. And now the story of, of all the work of redemption is rebuilding what was once there, is providing a place in which a holy God might dwell with a sinful people. That is a story of all of Scripture. That is a story certainly of Exodus. It's a story of the work of redemption. And now there must be rules, you see. In this intermediate, intermediate time, as God is providing some sort of way, there must be rules in which a sinful people can somehow safely dwell in the presence of a holy God. And that is so much the story of Exodus and the rest of the Pentateuch. Take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. Your feet, a picture of defilement, these sandals as a mark both of respect and of reminder of some measure of preparing yourself for holiness, the Lord prepares him. And it's a good thing. It would not have been kind had the Lord brought him as he was into his presence where he'd be consumed. As we see over and over again in Exodus, those who come into his presence on their own terms, having not been prepared, very much pay the consequences. So it is a kindness. Take off your shoes. And this foreshadows, as I say, the dwelling place of God among men. And, and soon enough there would be a tabernacle. And there would be so many rules with this tabernacle. And there would be inner and outer layers of it. And then soon, beyond that there would be a temple, a permanent place. And it would have so many different layers. A court of Gentiles and a court of women. And the, the common court and then a holy. And then within that the holy of holies where God himself is. And where you, the, the priest dare not just come in. Even the, the high priest himself dare not just come in off his own bat. But once a year with suitable preparations of heart and of, of body. And the, the vestments that he wore. And all the rest of the anointing oil. And you, you name it. All the things that enabled him to dwell safely in the holy. Lest what happened. What happens if you come into the presence of the Holy God not being prepared? On your own initiative, off your own bat, what happens then? Fire goes out from the Lord and consumes. Fire goes out from a holy God to a sinful person. This is holy ground. And there are rules of approaching God in this holy ground. But it is a good and gracious thing that there is such a thing as a holy God. There are a holy ground. There is a, there's, there is a mountain of God. There is a place where God can be approached. And this itself is a progression of the, the work of redemption. Now you remember how this carried on in Exodus chapter 20. This is, of course, the giving of the law. But in Exodus 20, 19, all the people witnessed the, the thunderings, the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. In the appearance of a holy God on the mountain before sinful people. And they know it. They feel it. 
And so that's what, that was the point of me reading from Hebrews chapter 12. For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and a blackness and darkest, darkness and tempest, the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded. And listen, if so much as a beast touches the mountain, here's the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. If so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am exceedingly afraid and trembling. Brothers and sisters, what does this reveal? What does this show? Yes, it shows two things, as it always does. The height of our holy God. He's not a a God of our imagination. He's not like the idols. He's not to be trifled with. He's not some domesticated animal. He is a holy God. And we do not approach him on our own terms. And on the other hand, we see the sinfulness of man. They were afraid and they were right to be afraid to come to holy ground because they are sinful people. Burning bush. Holy ground. And third, afraid to look. In verse 6, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now, on some other day, we might consider these, these words. It was, in fact, the subject of the time at the, the minister's training uh, conference stem down in London, which were dealing with the implications of Scripture. You're reminded how the Sadducees, who did not believe in a resurrection, they came to, to, to Jesus with some theological argument speaking of the implications of Scripture and saying, look, if what Moses said is true with regard to granting divorce and and so forth, then that means there couldn't be a resurrection because imagine a situation and they go on to paint their, their crazy situation and they say, see, we've got you. The implications of Scripture are there couldn't be a resurrection. And Jesus responds, you're greatly mistaken. You don't know Scripture nor the power of God. And he goes on to explain. And he asks, have you never read? Have you never even read Exodus chapter 3 in the burning bush? When he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He says, he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And what's the implication? The implication is that these people are alive. Isaac is alive. Abraham is alive. Jacob is alive. There must be a resurrection because God is saying he is their God. All that, the implications you see of one little verb, indeed, even of the the tense of single words in that text, that's how seriously God expects us to take these things. Not only Scripture, but also the implications of Scripture have the force of the Word of God. But that's not our subject tonight. Mainly, it was Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Why was Moses afraid to look? I think we've had some hints. I think we understand. But I want us to see another holy man as he encountered living holy God. And that is, of course, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 6. What was his response when he came into the heavenly throne room? 
Was it a casual chat that he has? I ask this because sometimes preaching today has turned into a casual sort of conversation like a talk show. And people say, why don't you preach like that? It's so, it's calming, it's easygoing, and, and if we invite guests, I'm sure they'll, they'll like that. The answer is because God's not like that. Okay? When people encounter the living God, it's not some casual interaction. God speaks. A holy God speaks to a sinful people. And we listen. It's no conversation two-way like a chat show. Listen to the way it is in Isaiah chapter 6. So I said, woe is me, for I am undone. This is a holy man, a, a priest of the royal family, a, or sorry, a, a prophet of the royal family, Isaiah. He says, I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's his reaction to being in the presence of a holy God. Why should it be any different when we're in church anyways? Are we worshiping some other God than that God? Is there a different God? Has he changed? No. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away. Your sin is purged. Now, I I have to say that much just because even in the midst of looking at this burning holiness and looking at just how other our God is and he is other, yet in the very midst of that, there's a picture of grace. There is a, a picture of a provision by which he could be made. He doesn't call us to himself without some provision that we can dwell among him. And having called Isaiah into his presence, called him into the heavenly throne room, he makes provision through this burning coal. There's a picture of the purity of the fire. It's a picture of the atonement in Christ. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. Praise God. But that's Moses. What about the angels? So you say, all right, I understand then. Or sorry, that's Isaiah. You understand Isaiah is fearful to be in the presence of... But look, even the angels themselves... In a few verses before that, in Isaiah 6, 2, then above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. You see that again? So these angels who were designed for the very purpose of being the throne room attendants of God, the furthest thing from being sinful, created for this very purpose, yet they themselves cover their face with one of the sets of their wings. Brothers and sisters, if that is the reality of a sinless seraphim, it is no strange thing that Moses would fear to look in the face of the living God. And therefore, God's people have always had a healthy fear of seeing God. Remember Jacob. So God says, I'm the God of Jacob. But you know, when God appeared to Jacob, this is and that the wrestling, you remember that in Genesis 32, Jacob called the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life was preserved because he is amazed. He has seen God face to face and he's still alive to tell the tale. Or Judges 6.22, Gideon, you remember that? Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. He knows who the angel of the Lord is. And Gideon says, alas, O Lord God, that's the way he he refers to the angel of the Lord. Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, peace be to you. 
you do not fear, you shall not die. Because they understand that seeing God face to face in this way is, is something that is a fearful, fearful thing. Well, in all this, we're reminded what is said in the prologue to the Gospel of John, that no one has seen God at any time. But the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. We haven't seen God in his pure essence. We haven't seen the Father. But who have we seen? We've seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is the image of the invisible God. And through him, we see the true God. We see a holy God. Well, that's a picture of the holiness of God. This, this very moment in time in which the Lord is coming to redeem his sinful people. He's coming to interact with one of the most holy men who's ever lived. And yet we see that he was afraid to look. We see that he needed to take his, his sandals off of his feet because he was standing on holy ground as he came to behold the burning holiness of the angel of the Lord. What do we do with these things? Well, first of all, it has to do with our faith and worship. Let me just say a word now about practical applications. Practical applications. We tend to think that this is where we get some hints and some helps for our lives, right? Ten, you know, ten steps to this or that or the other. And there's an element, a a real element of truth to that. Absolutely. We don't get them from self-help books. Not saying that they're evil, but but the, the, the main thing is we get help for our lives, certainly from this word of God, which is sufficient not only for our faith, but also for our lives. Right? So that's that's okay. But it is more than that. The applications must be more than that. Because if we, if we just think about tips and helps, it betrays a man-centered attitude that is not pleasing to the Lord. Because God is the one who is teaching us. When we receive preaching, God himself is teaching us through his word and spirit. Uh, please don't listen to me. God is teaching you. And we live to him. And the question is, what sort of priorities does he have for us? And very, very often the most important among, us is, among them is our faith and worship. Meaning the way that we worship is based on our faith. Our, our worship is based on our knowledge of God. We cannot worship an unknown God. We must have some conception of the God that we worship. And, and whatever God that we have, whatever attributes that we have in mind, that defines the way that we worship. Okay? That's, that's why theology and worship go together. Okay, there's a reason why there are certain churches that have a certain form of worship, very different than this one, and their theology is also very different, okay? They go together. Your conception of God defines your worship. And what you need to know, and the point that I am making with regard to worship, is that our God is a God of burning holiness. And all these appearances, physical appearances, display that and and emphasize that. That he is not a domesticated, effeminate God of human fancy and invention. He is a God having this burning holiness, which perhaps above all others, most immediately and most powerfully leads such worms of the earth that we are. Worms of the dust to worship. Each and every time when one of us comes before such a holy God, when we see any aspect of that holiness, we, are, we fall down on our faces and we worship. And that's what I would have us to do. I would have us to worship this holy God. Now, just another aspect of our faith and worship, I would say, is no images. Okay? 
no images. Here you have these people who are fearing to look upon the Son of God in His glory. They haven't made the image. He Himself is there. Right? The angel of the Lord has appeared. And every time they, they say, woe is me. I'm undone. What am I going to do? I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. There's some appearance. We don't, there's no hint of what it looked like. But they themselves are living in mortal fear because they've seen it. How then do we dare make pictures of Christ? How then do we dare make pictures of Christ? Brothers and sisters, is not to be. Our worship, our God, is too holy that we should take our hands and make some image of Christ. So it is for our worship. We worship a holy God and we worship in a way commensurate with that, not with images, with his word. And secondly, I say we should gladly embrace the mediator. Isn't it a wonderful thing that the work of redemption didn't stop there? Right? Because as I said, we haven't even begun to got into the, the rules that were necessary for these people. They had the ceremonial law. It, it, it dealt with everything, with the clothes that they wore, the food that they ate. Everything was regulated by the ceremonial law and all the laws of the, the temple. These things were very intricate and, and long-winded, frankly, because it all regulated the way that these people were to live with their God. That was all before Christ came. Should we not all the more than gladly embrace the mediator who has come? Because let, let me go on to read the other part of the section in Hebrews. I've read Hebrews twelve eighteen. For you have not come to the mountain that may not be touched, and that burn with fire and blackness and darkness and tempest. But in verse 22, but, but you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Isn't that wonderful? That's, that's the, the, the thing that we have now. That's the way of approach that we have to God. We're not taking our our sandals off, preparing in that sense in some physical way to meet with God. God has met with us. He has come in the form of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the way is open through this blood that is sprinkled upon us. If all you knew about God was what was revealed at Mount Horeb, where a holy man like Moses needed to take off his shoes to be in the presence of God, I hope that you would appreciate that you needed a mediator. And you have a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on the earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven. God has given us such a much better way. And how sad would it be not to embrace the mediator that is given to us. Thirdly and finally, we ought to serve God with godly fear. Because that's another part of Hebrews 12. And, and this is the application, actually, of speaking of this holiness. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire, you see. That's the God whom we serve, and we must serve in like manner. 
as a God whom we serve and we are being transformed more and more like to him. Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. And so this is a picture of all this. And we think of all this burning holiness. I have to tell you, my, my appetite for sin just disappears. You know? Sometimes, perhaps, I don't know, if you're sick, you kind of lose your appetite for food. Well, in a far better and more healthy way, in a good and wholesome way, when we look on the burning holiness of God, when we consider that our God is a consuming fire, our taste for sin just seems to evaporate. And how I pray it would have that effect on us. He would have us to be like him, to be a cons- as he is a consuming fire, that we might serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Well, let us pray. Lord, you have indeed spoken to us, and we recognize, Lord, that what can be said is never sufficient, and never does cover what ought to be covered, and never does affect us the way that we ought to be affected. Lord, we pray for the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, that, Lord, truly you would enable us to see a glimpse, to have a true understanding of your burning holiness. Lord, I don't know what other way that you could possibly reveal yourself to us that would make it more obvious the reality of your purity, the reality of your separateness from all that is sin and all that is not God indeed in your burning holiness. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that we would worship you in this holiness through the ways, the means, the instructions that you've given us and not anything of the imagination of our heart and especially not of any image. And, Heavenly Father, how we pray that each and every one of us would indeed embrace the mediator that is given. We cannot stand before our holy God, but you have made provision that we can. We can dwell with you through the provision of Christ. May we cling to him in faith. And, Lord, having been united to Christ, we do pray, Lord, that more and more of this holiness would find its way into our hearts and our minds. And, Lord, we would be holy as you are holy and that we would serve you with reverence and fear, as you are indeed a consuming fire. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.